everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Podcast. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. We are aware that beginning with this week's Parsha, there will be a disparity between the weekly Parsha read in Israel and in the Diaspora. We will be dropping the episodes according to the schedule in Israel, so that way everyone will have the correct episode available to them. Those living outside of Israel can listen to the episode dropped the previous week. Looking forward to reuniting at the start of Dvarim. Each week, we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea in that week's Parsha. Parshat Achrei Mot opens with the high priest service on Yom Kippur and continues with a series of prohibitions regarding sacrificial meat and the requirement to cover the blood of the animal killed. This is followed by a list of prohibited sexual relations that we read as our Torah reading at Mincha Yom Kippur. The Parsha concludes with a powerful reminder to maintain God's laws because otherwise the land of Israel could expel us. This is that powerful connection that Yael and I spoke about in Parshat Sav between the nation's purity and Israel's low tolerance for unholy ways of life. Today I have the pleasure to sit down with Tamar Weissman, who taught for years in Matan's Jerusalem branch. Tamar is a phenomenal tour guide and author of Tribal Lands and a forthcoming volume on Megillat Esther and on Sefer Shuftim. Tamar, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much, Yosefa, for having me. I'm delighted to be here. And there is no better reason to get together than to speak about Josephus's commentary and specifically how he highlights the character of Aaron. And so I'm thrilled to have you here today to go deep into that and deep into the Second Temple period, which we don't get to talk about so often. Very true. The Second Temple period is truly a fascinating period when it comes to Parshanut on the Torah. It's almost the earliest Parshanut on the Torah. Uh, if we consider the Book of Chronicles or Divrei Hayamim as, in a way, the earliest Midrash on the Torah that's followed very quickly by all of the literature that emerges that we call the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha and historical works in the Second Temple period and the post- Second Temple period, the early Roman period, um, and the Byzantine era. And there's just so much there, and it's so rich. And there's really quite a bit to talk about, though our focus today is on Josephus. You know, it's also, this period is so significant because it's, we can call it our earliest Midrash, which is one way that we often look at these these books that didn't make their way into Tanakh, um, sort of came a little bit too late, but they're often written in the same style as, as Tanakh is, and they, they mean to mimic the style of Tanakh. Um, but it's also, it's also Midrash, but it's also one of the ways that we gain insight into the initial reception of these stories. I Meaning when we read, I remember, I always love Josephus's take on, uh, on the birth of Moshe. Uh, and he has all these interesting additions there that I, I'd like to talk about around Pesach. And, and you sort of have to look at them and it's complex. And I'm sure you'll touch upon this, how, how we look at Josephus in terms of his, his writing. But one of the things that it is, is sort of an early witness to how some must have received these stories. We today have this vast uh, world of rabbinic literature. And when we talk about a midrash, so there's 17 different midrashim in that one pasuk. Um, but in some of these earliest works, they sort of serve as very early witnesses to how the earliest 
communities in the Second Temple period may have actually read and learned and understood our our Tanakh. Very much so. And I think that that's what draws me and many others to looking at these early works. And um, for me, particularly, the paraphrase that Josephus did of Tanakh, which is called Antiquities. I'll just give you a little bit of an anecdote, something that I came across about a year ago, even though I've been very, very interested in Josephus for quite a while. And about a year ago, when I was looking at the ninth parak of Shoftim, and I was thinking more about the different ways to understand that parak. It's a difficult parak uh, with Avimelech, and he's the son of Gid'on. And I took a look at Josephus. Avimelech is a, is a darker figure within Shoftim, um, and wanted to see what Josephus had to say. And he he identifies Avimelech's mother, who's who's um, identified in the text as a, the Pilegesh of Gidon, who is from Shechem. He gives her the name Druma, and I had not seen this anywhere. And I tried my best, uh, to the best of my ability, to come through all of the rabbinic literature out there and Parshanut. And it was a real one-off. And I spoke to experts in Josephus and experts in Tanakh, and no one could really understand uh, why he included her name, which is absent from the biblical text. We're left with a sense that, to a degree, perhaps, Josephus is very, very loyal to a tradition that he received. He was born as a Kohen to a priestly family in Jerusalem. He, his mother was from the Hasmonean royal family, and um, he saw himself, as he was further educated, as choosing the rabbinic life. And so, perhaps here and there, throughout his paraphrase of Tanakh, we are given glimpses of almost a forgotten Misora, forgotten tradition. The most fun that one can have with Josephus and, uh, and, and apocryphal pseudepigraphal literature is to see it as the earliest recorded history of Misora. James Kogel, uh, Professor Kogel does this masterfully in a very, very accessible work that he has called The Bible As It Was, where he traces midrashic motifs um, up through rabbinic literature. So through all of the literature, including Josephus, that was written from the second century BCE through the fourth century CE, and shows us that um, the rabbis, to a certain degree, yes, were innovative in their midrash, but to a very large degree, were uh, exceptionally and careful with transmitting traditions uh, that they had received. And these traditions we see uh, in in multiple places, including with Josephus, uh, who does deliver a midrash through a paraphrase, because every time you are translating or restating a verse in the Bible, you are explaining it. Um, and so every once in a while, you'll get a, ge- a gem like Druma, the mother of Avimelech, and say, what? Where did that come from? Um, and we don't find that elsewhere. But things like that draw me to the study of apocryphal literature, pseudepigraphal literature, of Philo, Josephus, um, all of this very, very early um, non-rabbinic and non not not uh, literature that's also not in Tanakh itself, um, so much so that uh, I, I wrote my thesis on um, Josephus's exegetical agendas, 
And I thought that it would be fun, even though most of my time now is spent uh, looking deeply into rabbinical exegesis to just uh, go back in time a little bit and, and, and look back at some of what Josephus has to say. Wow. Yeah. You know, I think that that's also a great thing to highlight is anyone who's really looking to dive deep in these early uh, Second Temple explorations of Tanakh. I think James Kugel is a great secondary resource. Um, his books, and actually my computer is sitting on one right now so that I'm high enough to see you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very similar, it's in Potiphar's house. It's another book that also tries to explain to you mm-hmm. how to trace midrashic motifs and which comes early, which comes later when you have four versions of the same midrash. Obviously, sometimes the dating of the Midrash itself can help, and sometimes it's not necessarily so clear. So he really has a methodology of how we how he looks at how Midrashim expand and they grow over time. So that's a great resource to to have. And even I just want I'm sorry, I'm yeah. sorry to cut you off. No, I just go. wanted to add that in addition to more of, a, of of an intellectual exercise or an academic exercise, this kind of study can be deeply moving because as soon as you shift to seeing individuals encountering and engaging with Tanakh as a a seminal text for them in any age, then you realize the timelessness of Tanakh. And so whether you are looking at Rashi's Perush or whether you are looking at all of the the exegesis that the Qumran community uh, came forward with, or in this case, Josephus, you're encountering throughout the ages the passion that different people felt towards Tanakh, their need to engage with Tanakh and their need to understand Tanakh and their context. So it is not only, although people tend to look at um, the, the, the paraphrase of Josephus, which is called the Antiquities of the Jews, as more uh, relegated towards academia. I don't see it like that at all. He catapults me right into his framework, his context, and his world. And um, for a little while then, I can see how 2,000 years ago, the Torah was was encountered and engaged with. You know, it's also Tamar sending me back to our previous conversation long ago, where we had a really a moving uh, element of our discussion was about your love for for rabbinic literature and for midrash and for engaging with with Misora. So I'll also, of course, put that in the show notes. So um, it just brought yeah. me back. I'm like remembering how moved I was when we spoke yeah. last time. So for me, primarily, and I think for for most people who are engaged in Talmud Torah, the most sensitive, acute readers of Tanakh will always be Chazal. And so that's why overwhelmingly I, I, I see Chazal as the embodiment of Misora. However, the pre-Chazal literature is so fascinating, not only from academic standpoint, which is delightful, but also very, very much from, dare I say, spiritual or true joy in Talmud Torah standpoint as well. Because again, we see how the earliest Jews who are writing who are beginning to write down the oral tradition are seeing the Tanakh and articulating the Tanakh in a written form. So what does he have to say about our own? Let's start, if you don't mind, with just a very brief survey of what 
the rabbinic tradition has to say about Aaron, because um, that's what we're, I think, all most familiar with. Uh, Aaron, in let's start. We can actually even go for go further back and start with Tanakh. Um, Tanakh will overwhelmingly. Uh, the presentation of Aaron in Tanakh is is obviously extremely positive, although there are episodes within the narrative that are somewhat problematic. And here I'm going to talk specifically about two. One is the Egel Hazahaf, uh, where Aaron seems to be, in a way, overly involved in um, in bringing forth the golden calf. And the second uh, episode in, in Tanakh, where Aaron's uh, um, actions are somewhat questionable is when he and Miriam are speaking about Moshe and um, Moshe's marriage to the Kushite. And so in those two cases, the verses themselves do not do much to exonerate Aaron. However, in the rabbinic tradition of Aaron, he is almost exonerated entirely from any culpability. In the, the episode of the Egel Hazahav. Um, he is also, the stress is put on ensuring that no one understands him to be envious in any way of his younger brother Moshe and the elevated status that Moshe has in the Torah and in our traditions. They also, there's a strong stress that the rabbis put on the fact that he accepted the divine decree of the death of his sons. Um, they, rabbis also tend to read the guilt of the Lashon Hara spoken about Moshe more on Miriam than on Aaron. And also they'll continue on and, and see Aaron as the exemplar of the Ohev Shalom, the Rodev Shalom, someone who truly loved peace. And there's even a tradition that Aaron never really sinned at all throughout his life. And he only died because death was decreed for all humans. So Chazal are, are very, their presentation of Aaron if we were to do a quick survey, is somewhat is is entirely uh, in a positive vein. Now, Josephus, which I, you know, I just want to add though, so that we have yeah. a little bit of perspective, is that that's not something that should be taken for granted. Meaning, Chazal do not uh, they do not shy away from criticizing. Sometimes their different midrashim are much more critical of any biblical character than we would have ever thought to be reading the text. So, the fact that they exonerate Aaron is not something that we should say because, oh, sure, of course, of course, Midrashim are going to whitewash. Midrashim do not always whitewash in the slightest. So I just want to point out how unusual that is because these are stories that really reflect quite negatively from the Pshat itself, right? That's our biggest question. One of our biggest questions surrounding Chete Egel, the sin of the golden calf, is Aaron's role and how is it possible? And I'll also just mention in an episode a few weeks ago with uh, with Margot uh, Batwinnik, but, uh, really around the death of his sons, we we actually brought in the Ramban's commentary where he says that the, that Aaron didn't initially listen to Moshe to bring the Egel, to bring the calf in the in the Mishkan because he was traumatized because all he could hear was the Egel and he was, you know, ringing with guilt, which had never been brought out because he was never actually punished. So I'm just bringing that by way of example to say that they did not have to go in that direction. Uh, and that's, it's unusual. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, now there uh, later parshanut will look more critically, I believe, at Aaron or at, at some other biblical figures and some other somewhat problematic or troubling stories throughout Tanakh with a more critical eye, perhaps a more honest, straightforward read of the psukim. But as far as Chazal are concerned, and I, I specifically am stressing that the rabbinic tradition is 
very, very strongly exonerating our own from culpability. Now, Josephus follows very much in that vein. And before I get into how Josephus is going to present Aaron, let me talk a little bit about what his agenda is. Now, Josephus introduced his biography a little bit. And just to round off his biography, coming from a strong rabbinic background as a young man, he was the general of the Great Revolt leading the Jews in revolt against the Romans up here in the Galilee in the north, eventually falling to the Romans in Yodfat in 67 CE and accompanying uh, Vespasian and Titus down to Jerusalem um, as um, their translator and to a a certain degree their guide. And then uh, uh, witnessing the fall of the temple, but from the Roman camp and then being brought as a slave initially to Rome, and then very quickly being given his freedom and um, and joining the Flavian uh, household, the royal household, um, as, and uh, who were his benefactors, and then spending the rest of his life in Rome writing his masterworks. And we're specifically, again, talking about Antiquities, which is the first part of Antiquities is his paraphrase of the Bible. And the second part is all of the history leading up to the destruction of the Second Temple. So, when you talk about uh, his paraphrase of Tanakh, what were his motivations? Primarily, most scholars are going to look at the paraphrase and say that what he was trying to do was present Torah to a Greco-Roman audience. And so he is very strongly both engaging in apologetics. In other words, when there are troubling characterizations throughout Tanakh that he views as troubling, or when there are difficult stories, then he will um, perhaps omit them, or he will perhaps reword them, because it's not a perush in the sense of quoting verses and then explaining the verses. He is rewriting Tanakh. And so he has a lot of um, uh, malleability there in his paraphrase. Um, He is also seeking perhaps to uh, be a truth teller, where he says, I saw that others perverted the truth of of the Bible in their writings. And so I want to present uh, the true version of events while still omitting um, some of the most important stories, as we'll see. Um, and he'll, he will also, in that same vein, given his audience, try to find a common ground between Jewish traditions and text and the popular Greek and Roman ideas of the time and um, what, the, the, what it, the Gentile audience will appreciate within the Bible. Uh, now, what I do believe, in addition to all of those exegetical agendas, is that Josephus is also very much rooted in his rabbinic background, and he is trying to interpret the text as a rabbi would. In other words, engaging in midrash, given the nuances and peculiarities uh, and curiosities of the text itself. So, while that comes through in certain cases throughout Josephus' paraphrase. For instance, if you were to look at the Akedah story or some of the um, Yo- uh, the Yosef stories, you'll see that he is strongly grappling with the nuances of the text. In many other cases, that is not the, the case. In other words, with Aaron, for instance, 
He is not acting as the Parshan. He is not looking closely at the language of the stories and working to present the subtext of the language. He's not writing a Midrash. So with Aaron, he will just leave out everything that's problematic and instead dwell on Aaron's virtues. So um, why does he do this? First of all, it's much easier to leave out the difficult stuff and not to have to have to confront the difficulties of having one of the biblical heroes be involved in such a story like the golden calf and the making of the golden calf. Uh, but beyond that, let's not forget that Yosef himself was a Yosef ben Matityahu, that's Josephus, uh, was a Kohen. So he sees himself as a continuation of the of the honor of Aaron and the glory of the priesthood. And so it's personally important for him that Aaron come across as positively as possible. So on the one hand, yes, he's being true to the rabbinic tradition of presenting Aaron as positively as possible. And also he is answering to his Greco-Roman audience where he would want to make sure that they are not thinking negatively about Aaron for the third reason, because he personally was invested in uh, making sure that Aaron came across well from a uh, family point of view. You know, it also reminds me of uh, Divrei Yamim, the book of Chronicles, which famously leaves out you know, some of the big problematic stories surrounding David's life. Uh, it's a book that in many ways very much tries to present David flawlessly. Uh, doesn't have the story of, of him and Bathsheba, for example. And that's very purposeful. Again, question of who's the audience or what was the intention uh, when it was written, which are questions that we shy away from often in a religious community from asking about the Torah. Of course, in the academic world, they don't shy away from those questions. But Divrei, I mean, you can't really read through it without coming across that particular agenda. It's sort of very clear. I think the more meaningful part of that point is that when you look at Shmuel Melachim, you see that that was nowhere near the agenda, meaning Shmuel Melachim really try and present David in all of his grandeur and his complexity Whereas Divrei Yamim already had a different perspective that I wanted to get across. And that is part of the joy of studying Josephus and um, all of this apocryphal and pseudepigraphal literature, um, which is that we're not bound, or I personally don't feel bound um, by the same, for lack of a better word, hermeneutics in, uh, that we employ when studying Tanakh as a religiously committed, observant uh, Jew. My study of Tanakh, um, is is a holy endeavor and it is a mitzvah and when we have these other texts to play with then i tend to look at at these texts far more in their historical context and who josephus's audience was and who philo's audience may be and and who the book of jubilees might have been written for and in what context and so um i i i believe there is a flexibility that uh I personally am a, a, a grant myself there that I don't do in, uh, in the study of Tanakh. So um, to continue on with this idea of, of Aaron presented in Josephus, um, Josephus will embellish Aaron's virtues. Um, and, and he does so on the one hand to justify why Aaron was appointed as the Kohen Gadol. Um, and again, on the other hand, because he personally was a Kohen, 
Yosef de Matatiahu. So it, it was um, of critical importance to him to elevate Aaron. And he will say that Aaron was more deserving than all others. And that is why he was appointed the Kohen Gadol. So he's very concerned with avoiding a sense of nepotism that Aaron became the Kohen Gadol because he was Moshe's brother. So I'm just going to quote to you here from the third book of Antiquities. Antiquities in total is 20 books. And as I said, the first half is the biblical paraphrase. And Moshe here is speaking to Am Yisrael. And he is saying in the context of the rebellion of Korach, who was challenging both the authority of Moshe, but even more specifically, the authority of Aharon and the fact that Aaron had been given the kuhuna. And Moshe, in, in Josephus's words, says that it's true, Korach, that I have given the office to my brother, but not because of any kind of nepotism. It was not out of brotherly affection, which someone else might have done. But rather, it is because due to his own worth, and here I'm quoting from um, another set selection of antiquities. God himself has determined that Aaron is worthy of this honor and has chosen him for his priest. And, and, and Yosef, Yosef and Matityahu add something very, very um, uh, provocative here that we do not see in the biblical text at all. And he, Moshe, he puts these words into Moshe's mouth. Had the inquiry after such a person been left to me, in other words, had you asked me, had God asked me, who should be the Kohen Gadol, I should have thought myself worthy of this honor, both because all men are naturally fond of themselves and also because I worked really hard on Yisrael, on your deliverance. Um, but now God himself has determined that Aaron is worthy of this honor. So um, there, uh, Josephus takes a little liberty with Moshe going even further than he had to with saying that there is no nepotism. I would have taken the kuhuna onto myself had I been given the choice. But rather, uh, it is Hashem who has determined that Aaron and his family should get the kuhuna. Um, so he stresses Aaron's virtue over and over again. He calls him a man of great courage. Um, in the pasuk that we had in, in, in Parshat Shmini, Vaidom Aaron, where Aaron maintains the silence upon the death of Nadav and Avihu. Um, the, uh, Josephus will say that he had something called which is a very, very strong uh, expression in Greek, which means the firmness of soul, that he was a stalwart and had fortitude that was extremely admirable. Now, this is an expansion of what, the, what Tanakh gives us which is Vayidom Aaron, and Aaron maintained a silence. In that silence, what could that silence mean? Could it mean a great emotional turmoil uh, in Josephus's estimation, so as to make Aaron uh, the most virtuous as possible and the most um, admiring in the eyes of his Greco-Roman audience? He will say in a very well-understood phrase for that audience, which is the Suchesteros, firmness of soul, stalwart, and, um, and again, with much fortitude. Um, so I have, I think, made the case that Aaron was uh, presented uh, as extremely virtuous. Now, how Josephus deals with the problems 
of, um, of Aaron as presented in Tanakh is, as I had said, invo- he avoids them entirely. So when it comes to the Egel Hazahav, um, from the rabbinic point of view, yes, there is an attempt to diminish the scope of Aaron's involvement. Um, and, uh, beyond that, um, the entire, ep- the, the psukim that involve Aaron, uh, are to be read, but not translated in the synagogue. That's, uh, that's from the Mishnah and Megillah. Um, and Chazal will then say further that Aaron's life was threatened and he feared being killed by, by Chor and he prote- procrastinated as much as possible. Uh, but the way that Josephus deals with it is that he just omits it entirely. And then he will go on and omit any time when Aaron could possibly be at fault. Um, so, for instance, as I had mentioned earlier, when it comes to the Lashon Hara uh, of Moshe marrying a Kushia, um, he just doesn't mention that at all. So in that case, uh, he's also just um, um, omitting any reference to Miriam's wrongdoing there. He will also omit the story of Mei where Moshe and Aaron sin in hitting the rock instead of speaking to it. That's also a pretty critical um, biblical story, and he'll just leave it out entirely. Um, so the truth is that though Josephus will work hard to, um, to glorify Aaron, he will also minimize references to Aaron um, as much as possible, because uh, to simplify matters, in, for his specific audience, Moshe is the hero of the day. And any, as you had, as you had said, when it comes to Divrei Hayamim and the glorification of Beit David, um, Josephus is very concerned with the glorification of Moshe and anything that might detract in any way, um, from uh, Moshe's glory is just omitted. So, for instance, where Aaron is the one who is who is um, meant to be the spokesperson um, for Moshe, when Moshe is is kaved peh kaved lashon, that's omitted, and Moshe does most of the speaking in the biblical record in the Torah. When Aaron does a fair share of the ototu moftim and makot, all of the signs and wonders, and and even um, is the one who brings about. Uh, through Hashem's command, some of the plagues, it's only Moshe in Josephus's record. Um, so throughout the Midbar as well, the focus is taken off Aaron and put on Moshe. When Bnei Yisrael complain, they're only complaining to Moshe. Um, so the, the, the focus that um, uh, is placed on Moshe is to preserve his primacy because the Romans had already known about Moshe. And Josephus didn't want to detract at all from Moshe's greatness in their estimation. Um, so, in summary, when we look at uh, Josephus's treatment of Aaron, he is personally vested in making sure that Aaron comes off clean as a whistle. He also wants to um, answer to his Greco-Roman audience who, are, who already recognize Moshe and therefore doesn't want to detract from Moshe by introducing another element of greatness within Am Yisrael in that generation. So he downplays Aaron and, and Miriam's involvement uh, throughout the exodus from Egypt and the Midbar experience. And he also will play up Aaron's virtues and again downplay 
any of the more problematic areas. So in this case, when it comes to Aaron, I think that Josephus was um, very much fashioning his treatment of Aaron to be accessible to his specific audience, to get across the glory of Moshe and not detract from that in any way by introducing others who were uh, heroes to Am Yisrael at the same time uh, that Moshe was living. And it was much less of an employment of his agenda of trying to be careful with the text itself of the Torah. He wasn't looking at the psukim and trying to explain them and flex his parshanut muscles when it comes to Aaron. He would do that in other cases, but not here. For anyone who wants to, is inspired to go and read Antiquities, so it exists in full English translation uh, on the internet. It's a relatively good translation. Of course, he initially wrote in Greek, right? The initial Antiquities right. was written in Greek, and that was also significant because it was, obviously, as you said, made accessible to, to the audience it was written for. Um, but today we have a translation uh, into English, so it's available for anybody who's interested in that. You know, I really appreciate this, Tamar, because I think that many, many of our listeners will not be so familiar with Josephus's writing. And I think you've given us a great frame of how, how to look at it. Meaning, even if someone is not going to go into the academic literature of how to look at, uh, how to look at Josephus, we really have some great tools in our hands, uh, for how to, to look at it. And on one hand, it's something that we should take seriously in terms of understanding how he was trying to give across the Torah to his audience. Uh, on the other hand, we don't need to be too alarmed by the uh, inconsonances or the, the differences between what he writes. Uh, for example, okay, there are other writings that we look at as sort of that their intention is to stick closer to the text that we question, well, what is that tradition? Um, wh- how, how did they get that? Which you did in, with Josephus in your example you gave from the beginning about Avimelech's mother, but largely when it comes to Josephus, we don't take his exegesis seriously enough to then go back and question, well, is there something in the biblical text that we missed? Meaning sometimes he will have these gems, as you said, but very often we have to understand that there's sort of part of this broader whole of, of his of his overall intention, or as you said, agenda, of how he's trying to make the text accessible to his audience that he was speaking to. So he sort of is like this fascinating middle ground between also being an exegete, but also being a uh, were hyper aware of the audience that he was trying to write for and that he was liberal in how he would how he would paraphrase the biblical text. You really put that beautifully. And that just circles back to uh, what we were discussing earlier, which is the flexibility that we can allow ourselves um, and, and a little bit of a, of a lighter sense that we can allow ourselves when we read through the Kadmoniot, the Antiquities of Josephus, and not invest it with the Kedusha and the reverence and even the uh, rigor that we are called upon when, we're, when we engage in true Talmud Torah. But I must mention that the seminal scholar who deals with Josephus studies, I believe he was uh, affiliated with YU, Louis Feldman, um, yeah. who had dealt with many different stories from a new historical standpoint. And I, much of today's talk came from one of his articles on Aaron that I got from his, one of his books, Studies in Josephus's Rewritten Bible. Um, he is the resource for those who are interested in specifically how Josephus is writing for his audience and why he makes the decisions that he does, uh, given his apologetic 
approach and uh, trying to cater to his audience. For those who are more interested in Yosef Ben Matityahu as the exegete, as the Parshan, uh, there's not as much available. There's a little here and there. But for those who, who really want to take that on, feel free to con- contact me and I can direct you to those articles. I'll say also in Hebrew, uh, someone who taught me, it was my professor in Bar-Ilan, is Michael Avioz. Uh, he really focuses on, on Josephus as a, as a commentator. And so those are two great resources. I also was introduced first to Josephus through uh, Professor Feldman's work. So I appreciate that. Tamar, thank you so much for being here today and for opening up our minds and hearts to a, a new way of looking at, at the text. Thank you for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do One-on-One and Women's Torah Learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.